Welcome to The Den Tapes, a podcast dedicated to the reading of horror fiction. I'm your host, Tony. Sit back, relax, and let's see if we can give you a case of the heebie-jeebies. This week's episode has content of a graphic, explicit nature. Listener discretion is advised. Today's story is called The Lovebirds. At first, you'd read a friend's post about the power being out in their part of town. A quick few sentences on your screen of choice, complaining of how annoying it was to be without the means to charge everything that they use. Cell phones, iPads, Alexa, Cortana, even some of their sex toys. One friend boasted, sad face, it was dead the whole time. This post was accompanied by a picture of herself holding a vibrator with zero charge. Then it was on to local restaurants closing down for days at a time because the power was out. Banks closing doors earlier or opening them later. Grocery stores running on generators. Nothing we hadn't seen before. Nothing that seemed all that strange to any of us. Some of my fondest memories as a kid are rooted in losing power gathering around a board game under the light of all the gas lamps my mother had collected. Nostalgia, and being too busy to face what was going on, is most likely why none of us took notice of how gradually the environment was changing. It wasn't like there was some catastrophic event that changed the world forever. It crept upon us over a few decades. Of course, there were warnings from ecologists, biologists, physicists, and many other facets of the scientific community over the years, dating back almost a century. But most people don't like to be bothered with news on that large of a scale. They want to read about how the local fire department saved Mrs. Thompson's cat, or how the Franklins just celebrated 50 years of the diner being open, that they're giving away free pieces of Nana Anna's famous chocolate pudding pie. These environmental changes throughout history, and usually man-made, slip their way by most of the population due to people's eagerness to argue for or against anything relevant. News outlets easing the turmoil into your homes through screens we have all become addicted to. Countries marched onto foreign soil while parading behind a facade of a booming economy, harnessing nostalgia as the gasoline to set both sides of the argument ablaze. Some yearning for the good old days. The opposition, people garnered with the label of being leftist, would cite practices being outdated and harmful. While the two sides argued, the ones who truly ruled the land of the free got to work keeping themselves rich and untouchable. 
It's a song that has been sung for as long as humans have been able to hum. Change is needed for the future to be better, or change is what is destroying good old Christian values. None of it matters. Whichever side you sit on, Mother Nature does not give a shit. She's proven that to us. Violently. And yet, people still argued over what to do. When the power lines began to be routed underground, millions of jobs were created. This meant more earnings for a considerable amount of the populace. A fat stack of cash in your pocket will indeed cloud your vision when it comes to why the power lines themselves need to be shielded from the ever-strengthening wind in the first place. Little power outages ranging from a few hours to a day began to occur much more frequently. Twice a month, once a week, daily. But it was when the millionaire tourist destination of Mammoth Lakes, California went dark for two months during the hardest ski season that the U.S. government finally took notice. It left over 60,000 people dead, most frozen to death, the remainder starved. Then it was another mass casualty outage when most of the Yucatan lost power for over a half a year. This being another high traffic tourist spot. But as most of us know, Mexico is a much more resilient country when it comes to being faced with adversity. They've squared off against Mother Nature for centuries and have adapted well. The 26,000 or so visitors from around the globe didn't fare so well. Rumor has it, all of them got respectable burials, though. The same goes for the deep recesses of Scandinavia, China, and India. For thousands of years, people in those areas went without the luxuries we've only had for about 110 years now. For them, life didn't change much. Some argued that life was better during the outages. No cell phones to demand your attention. Physical labor keeping the body nice and fit time spent with family protecting each other from the elements. Values that can be practiced no matter what religion you hold close to your heart. Russia went completely off the grid when the Eastern World outage took hold. At least that's what the U.S. government told us via various news publications. All mostly still digital because the good people of the U.S. found a way around all the outages. Running electricity off of newly acquired generators bought with the excess of the pay jump when most of the blue-collar Americans transitioned into the power line relocation field. Shielding the truth behind what really happened in Russia was most likely due to the fact that the U.S. cut all ties with them, and most of the Eastern world, when Russia opened up their power plants to scientists from around the world to figure out what the problem actually was. It's no secret that good old U.S. of A likes to be the hero when the world is in need of rescue. Couldn't let the millions upon millions of Americans at home with gasoline-generated power know that Russia had beaten us to a solution. America, however, turned the narrative from wind strength will soon wipe out all of the world's structures to simply creating American jobs worldwide. That was once news broke about what was actually happening overseas. Shipping off proud American workers to various parts of the globe to combat Mother Nature. That was short-lived. 
when Delta Flight 1673 came barreling out of the sky, erupting into a farm in Nebraska and leaving nothing but a crater and some partially blown to shit livestock, the Federal Aviation Administration grounded all flights. Not another plane has been in the sky since. And all those proud Americans who took jobs in other countries, well, they're no longer Americans, so to speak. Ocean travel became the only source of intercontinental navigation, but who the hell was going to get on a ship and brave being blown over, ripped apart, and sunk into the depths of the ocean? The sea was already a terrifying place. Alaskan crab fishermen told us so back in the early aughts via reality television. No grounded captain was going to take a ship full of crew members out onto rumbling waters if planes were being swatted out of the sky by winds recorded as the strongest in history. The CMP suits were what kept the camels back from breaking. The technology behind the suits saved the world in terms of keeping a blistering, booming economy. Jobs had once again been created and there was nothing to worry about. This too shall pass. American scientists' big idea was to create a suit of lightweight material that ran a low, constant hum of magnetic force. The Continuous Magnetic Pulse Suit. This ensured the user would not be eaten up and spat out hundreds of feet away by a sudden surge of wind, while, you guessed it, working on the power lines. The suit created a synthetic attraction to the ground which has oodles of naturally occurring metals below the surface. This was another reason sailors stopped sailing. A CMP doesn't quite work over water, now does it? Of course, as the world was coming to an end and people became convinced nothing was truly wrong, there was a boost in job applications. Suits needed to be made. Power lines needed to be pulled down and ran into tubes underground. All people could talk about was how they were making the most money they had ever raked in, blabbering on about how excited they were to finally own their house. Meanwhile, the Statue of Liberty crumbled into the Hudson, and the Sears Tower toppled over, destroying five blocks of Chicago. Both events had thousands of casualties because people had money to blow, and there were sights to be seen, by golly. A slew of citizens set out to see as many monuments and American wonders as they could before the winds made sure they were gone forever. Affordable versions of the CMP suits were popping up all over the place. Amazon had their knockoff delivered to your doorstep the next day. Dickies created one to sell for cheap under contract at Walmart. The illusion of safety blossomed under hip marketing schemes while people were being told to get out and enjoy life, not to be beaten down by fear, to grab life by the fucking balls. One slogan I saw on the side of a Hardee's boasted, You make the money, better spend it before you can't. Bright, bold lettering complete with a smiling cartoon star winking at me. We had all been so poor for so long that we never came to the realization that we were, in fact, poor. Thus, making it a free-for-all when everyone began earning triple, sometimes quadruple their income working on CMP manufacturing lines or training in power line relocation. That's exactly why I am huddled under a flickering light a thousand yards below the surface. 
I now make five times more than what I did working at the water company back in Huntington as a supervisor. Here I am fabricating CMP modulation kits for vehicles, the natural next step in the evolution of travel safety. To be frank, I took the job mainly because I was advised by an old friend to spend as much time as I could underground. In her words, shit's about to get ripped apart, and I for one can't wait to see the bumbling morons try to quote-unquote job create their way out of the end of civilization. She was my high school sweetheart, way out of my league. Probably why she's the leading ecological supervisor of the Pacific Northwest and why I am in a bunker welding and soldering somewhere under the Dakotas. I remember when it was supposed to be all nanotech and lab-grown meats, hoverboards and flying cars. I remember being in awe of my first iPod, my first all-in-one computer. That all seems like a lifetime ago now. Hank, my co-worker, told me there was a rumble over in the East Hangar. That was shortly followed by all underground Wi-Fi going completely dead. The lights, well, they said we have about a month's worth of juice left in the E-cells. That's what we call the giant batteries that are for emergency power. As I finish up my 25th automotive CMP, I find myself wondering how long the gas will last for welding. It all seems trivial now, making some upgrade for a car that will probably never be driven. You know, after, how did she put it? Shit gets ripped apart. Killing the flame on my welder, I sit up wondering what's happening up top. I can't help but think about when the old man died. He was recruited during the first wave of the Powerline relocation campaign, coming out of retirement. My dad, that patriotic Fox News-obsessed old shitbird. Back when cell service was rolling strong, I got a call while I was on a job servicing old sewage drains back in Huntington. Draining, drying, and preparing them for the rerouting of the power lines. Mom was hysterical. I couldn't make out a single word other than, Your father is gone. Turns out, once they found his body, I mean, what was left of it, I guess, he hadn't strapped himself into his CMP correctly. You know, he always bitched about the shoulder straps on those first models, how they dug into his skin, something fierce. He'd been a lineman for 30 years, known back then to climb up the tallest poles and grab a live wire with his bare hands. He bitched and moaned about all the new safety protocols. Uh, well, back then, yeah, real men climbed up the lines. Now they're making us all out to be a bunch of overprotected prissy boys. He would howl as my mother would ask him if he had his CMP in the truck. He was definitely one of the older folks who swayed towards the side of change being a bad thing. Turns out, the very thing he fought against, the very thing he thought made him an overprotected prissy boy, was the very thing that got him killed. Up on a pole, the shoulder straps of his CMP unlatched and Mother Nature lurking around the bend. 
She did not spare him that day. A gust of wind, upwards of 230 miles per hour, lifted him right out of the suit, dropping him a quarter of a mile away atop the rundown bus depot from 120 feet up in the sky. Raining blood down on the worn, brick, flesh and bone torn and busted. Mom found some comfort in the fact that the coroner told us he was most likely unconscious from the elevation, but being tossed around like a rag doll and burst like a balloon ended up being the fate of many of those old-timer linemen that refused to update their CMP suits. Hank is an old-timer. He was a mechanic, ran his own shop over in Bismarck. He spouts off all kinds of silly-sounding insults only an older guy talking to a younger co-worker could get away with. Huh, you little twink, we would've eaten you for lunch back at the shop. Or, nice soft hands you got there, baby boy, don't forget to moisturize when you get back to the bunker. Of course, it's just the two of us down here, so he ends up laughing at his own jokes while I just roll my eyes. When he came in and told me about the rumble in the East Hangar, he said, Sounded like a biggin'. And chuckled, but I think the giggling was a means to not let me know that he was actually frightened. When he rushed in 30 minutes later, blabbering on about how we were being ordered to stay under until further notice, he did not hide the fact that he was shaken. Oh, there's uh, only about a month's worth of power in those E-cells. He continued to ramble on about food supply as he wandered off. I can hear him in the lunchroom, frantically trying to call his daughter, but without the Wi-Fi, there is zero chance of communicating directly with anyone other than the ground base. I grip the coupling tool in my back pocket as I mosey into the lunchroom. Hank, everything is going to be just fine, I say, even though I have a gut feeling my dear old high school sweetheart's premonition is coming true up top. Shit is most likely being ripped apart, and I'm stuck down here with someone who thinks Joe Rogan is onto something. Leaving me stranded with a month to figure out how to keep on while I get called every playful insult in the book. My fingers are hot from how tight I'm gripping the coupler. When Hank turns to me to ponder how long it will be before the oxygen annex loses power, causing us to suffocate, I know that I am making the right decision. The flat sounding thud of the steel hitting the side of his face echoes around us. I squint one eye because some of the old timer's blood stings when it splatters onto my face. I continue to swing the tool, connecting each time with skin-splitting, bone-crunching blows. That's why only one of us should be breathing, I say as I watch the coupler come down a tenth and final time, rendering Hank's face almost unrecognizable. It was his bitching about the food supply, the oxygen supply, and the fact he routinely bullied me that I knew I had to get him before he got me. Besides, we all know those old-timers think they are stronger, smarter, and faster than us overprotected prissy boys. It was only a matter of time before he smacked my face in with one of the other tools laying around here. And obviously, none of this is going to matter anyway. 
Even if I do make it back to the surface, I'm sure Mother Nature will toss me around like a ragdoll and burst me like a balloon. But who knows, I think to myself as I stuff my CMP into a bag and head towards the west lift. I stop and stare at a chest of tools. I better take a few of those with me, but not to fabricate any other magnetic pulsators. As I twirl a crowbar in my hand, I know that these tools will be used to kill anyone else that stands between me and surviving. That's when I hear it for the first time. Well, not so much hear it as I feel it. Dust falling from the ceiling above me, the walls rattling, the ground under my feet pulsing. I braced myself for a cave-in, something we had trained for so many times, but it had never actually happened. The training was basically just how to get comfortable and die. But as I let myself get pissed at the fact that I had just killed Hank and he would not have to live through this with me, it all ceases. From the east corridor, a heinous, rumbling voice fills the tunnels. I couldn't make out a word of it, not being able to understand the language. A tinge of memory strikes me. Me sitting in high school during a Latin lesson. My parents back then had this overzealous idea I would be a doctor one day. Being stuck underground while some otherworldly voice exclaimed something in Latin was not how I saw myself ending the workday or using my high school Latin knowledge, let alone with a coupler covered in my co-workers' brains stuffed into my back pocket. I break into a sprint towards the west lift, fighting the urge to turn and see what had just broken through the east end divider about a hundred feet behind me. I run harder than I have in years. I near the repurposed freight elevator when I hear it call out, this time the words being unmistakable. The metal. The metal. The metal man. Latin lessons have me knowing that means release me. I smash my hand onto the call button. The lift rings out. That annoying buzz letting me know it was idling on some floor above me. I close my eyes and I grip the crowbar tightly. I turn, trying to maintain some sort of menacing stance, but cower before what I saw. A hulking creature that barely fits its massive body into the tunnel we shared. Crawling, inching its way closer to me, it looks like some sort of old Greek titan that had been locked away centuries ago. Skin like stone that vibrates with each breath it takes through its gigantic, almost human-like nostrils. Two sets of eyes that seem to have multiple pupils focusing on me as more of an obstacle than prey. I take my eyes off the creature and return my gaze to the lift. It is still at least one floor away. The beast snarls, saliva spraying from its razor-teethed mouth. Deciding it was a much more intelligent move to jump into the shaft and take my chances on the floor below, hoping, wishing, fuck, I haven't done it in years, but right now I find myself praying the damn thing doesn't follow me down that it would take an escape up the shaft while I descended, destroying my only immediate way back up top. I frantically fling the steel cage up, 
and leap into the shaft, making sure I tuck the crowbar in the back straps of my pack before I do so. Part of the training I had to endure before working underground was learning how to tuck and roll if I tumbled down some exposed, unmarked shaft. I do exactly that, but where I had placed the crowbar turned out to be the worst place possible to store it. As I roll, I feel the split curved in pop my flesh. A blinding pain takes hold of me as I let out a scream reminiscent of some of that old Norwegian black metal I used to listen to as a raucous teenager. I pull the crowbar from under me, lips quivering as it releases from somewhere in my lower back, feeling the warm dampness of my clothes swell as I lie there staring up watching the beast ascend to the surface, its enormous hands crushing steel girders like toothpicks. As I see sunlight for the first time in a week, the beast pulls itself onto the ground above and stands upright. Holy shit, it is even bigger than I had previously thought. I hear it howl, rattling the bent, twisted metal of the shaft. Thundering booms rang out as it pounded its fist on the surface of the earth, thousands of feet above me. I wince and roll into my side. I have to do something about this bleeding. I struggle my way to my feet and raise the gate. This floor is where all the finished CMP kits are stored. Luckily for me, the ironic illusion of safety as we faced at the end of the world ensures there will be a first aid kit stored somewhere close. It is protocol after all. This floor also has a signal booster for communication with the surface that runs on a backup energy supply in the event of a power loss. You know, in case some gargantuan, what I assume to be ancient monster awakes from its slumber and commences to wreck shop. There is only one person I can think of to reach out to, my old high school crush. The one who tried to warn all of us shit was about to hit the fan. I'm hoping she had enough time to duck. I patch myself up best I can and hobble to the comms station. Wouldn't you know it, Facebook was already open. Another ironic illusion during the end times. Open-ended, 24-hour access to anyone we could think of. I type out a message at first asking for some sort of aid, but feel it sounds much more badass if I send out a warning. She replies quickly, explaining that there are more of these giant beasts popping up out of the ground, all of them out of underground CMP manufacturing plants. Before her connection is lost, she theorizes that the CMPs have shaken loose some sort of protective layer that had imprisoned these monstrous beings. As I read the words, alone in the dark, I smirk. Maybe I did retain some of the shit from high school after all drawing a similarity to the Greek titans when I first saw that thing puffing its chest at me, cast away and stricken into eternal darkness below some eons ago. I guess we bit ourselves in the ass with the CMPs now, didn't we? Here we were, watching the economy boom, fighting our battles with the wind, while the one thing we thought could save us unlocked the cages of a force far worse. She ends up being the last person I have direct contact with. I figure with a month's worth of power and probably a few more than that worth of food, staying down here is my only option now. 
That was about a week ago. I heard what I assumed to be another Titan make its way to the surface yesterday. I joked with Hank, as if he wasn't a rotting corpse, that the second one was the wife wondering why the husband hadn't come home yet. I swear I heard Hank chuckle. But I know it's only my self-preservation trying to protect me from debilitating loneliness. I tell Hank that I'm going to try and climb up the shaft tomorrow after breakfast. He tells me, Yeah, kid, maybe not go up the shaft. Maybe go into the East End Tunnels down there, see where these damn things came from. My mind bringing that old bully back to life, having him finish up the suggestion by calling me a Sissy boy. I contemplate hitting him over the head with the crowbar, but, you know, I already did that with the coupler. Besides, I figure it best to conserve my energy if I'm going to climb my way out of here, or head into the East End Tunnels. My back seems to be healing fine. I bled out a bit last night because I found Hank's stash of old Tennessee whiskey. Completely forgetting alcohol thins the blood. I have one hell of a hangover, but I am determined to take whatever remains of this day to ready myself to leave my current holdout. It's so damn hard to keep time straight down here especially with the Wi-Fi being out. The comm station failed sometime between my last pull of whiskey while sitting there trying to find any information about what was happening up top, and when I woke up bent over the control desk, I had bled through my patch job. The only information I could find while the comms were still up was a mishmash of social media videos, shaky, poorly filmed footage of folks running away from the various titans up top. I did notice, however, they were the only things not being completely blown over by the wind. One point Titans. Zero points everybody else. There was one video, however, showing a group of hellacious-looking giants feasting on a herd of livestock, ripping through them like a child picking out their favorite toy, pulling them apart, shoveling them into their massive mouths, chomping down through fur, flesh, and bone. Part of me thinks that staying underground now is my best option. Another part of me craves watching the end of the world play out in real time. Like that wasn't what I had already been doing for the past couple of years. I'll see how I feel tomorrow. Maybe Hank was right. Maybe heading into the East End Tunnels and taking a peek at what lays further underneath me is a good idea. You know, Indiana Jones that shit. Go out in a heroic flash. I'll make that decision tomorrow. Whether or not I want to go up or head farther into the earth, I can't stay here. Food is getting low and Hank's decomposing corpse smells fucking awful. My eyes are heavy, I think to myself as I doze off. When I came to this morning, I packed up what I could carry. I patched myself up nice and tight. I stuffed extra gauze and ointment into my pack. Standing in the connector tunnel, I find myself twirling in circles, staring towards the side the Titans came from, then back towards the busted lift. Either way, this is not going to be an easy journey. Anxiety-stricken, I throw my stuff onto the ground, the tools I may have to use as weapons clanging together, echoing all over this cavernous factory. I keel over and find it hard to keep a steady flow of breathing. I slowly count to ten, Closing my eyes, I think of something calming, 
The girl I almost married. One of the best nights of my life. Lying naked in a loft apartment, windows open, trying to blow the smoke of the post-sex cigarette we're sharing out of the window behind the headboard. Old blues music popping and crackling out of a record player on the nightstand. Sipping on Manhattans that had gone warm because we didn't stop to drink them once we started kissing. They sat on the dresser untouched as we couldn't stop touching each other. Our clothes nothing but a strewn about pile on the floor. The memories interrupted. It goes dark, gone forever in some sort of fear-induced abyss. It's Hank again. Better get going, kid. I think the lovebirds are coming back. I shake my head and tell Hank to shut the fuck up. I know he's referring back to our little joke about the second titan being the worried wife out looking for her husband. And damn it if he isn't right. I hear the steel of the lift ring out as it's being demolished by the two monsters crawling back into the tunnels. Let the wind up be too much for him up there. Hank cackles. Again, I tell him to shut his fucking mouth as I strap on all my packs and bags. Too late now, kid. Better head east. He's stern this time, almost sounding sad, as if he wished he could come with me. I tell him I'm sorry and burst into a full sprint with all my gear hanging off of me in every which direction. I refuse to turn and look when I hear the thuds and booms of the first titan climbing out of the shaft and into the tunnels. I chug along past the connection door that had been bent with ease, lights and cords dangling, sparking above me. I can briefly smell something horribly foul, like a sewage malfunction. Retching, I cover my mouth and nose. That's not sewage. That's... That's what Hank smells like, but amplified. And then I come upon them. Squished, mangled, ruptured, you name it, the East End crew got the worst of it. Bones sticking through flesh, heads popped like balloons. I hear a low hiss, the sound of an electrical current. It grows louder the farther east I run. The rocks, the dust, the strewn about rubble all crumble and grind under my feet as I come to an immediate halt, almost diving headfirst into a massive hole in the ground, which is a bit of a mindfuck. A hole in the ground inside an even larger hole in the ground. But there's no time to dive deep into the philosophical properties of that paradox. I finally peer over my shoulder to check on the lovebirds. They are far enough behind me that I can take my time with this, trying to figure out if I want to crawl down into this void from whence they came or shuffle my way around it. Hoping I'm not going to die today, I settle on the ladder. I really want to see what's down there, but my curiosity does not outweigh my instinct to live. Fuck being Indiana Jones, I'd rather survive and take my chances on a world that is clearly coming to a violent and abrupt end. I do not want to crawl down into some million-year-old gorge where demon-ass giants have been hibernating. Yeah, it could be the coolest thing I've ever seen, but alas, what's more American than surviving to tell the tale? You know, to spend the details of the horrific endeavor one survives. To not look too deep into the hole, whatever hole that might be, to find the answers. Right before I slip and fall in, I chuckle at how this entire cataclysmic event is going to wreak havoc on the economy. Remember how I fell on that crowbar last week? 
I'm sure you can imagine the kind of impalements that came when I hit the ground with two bags full of other tools. I hope the lovebirds eat me. I hope they enjoy me for dinner so that I can die quickly instead of bleeding out so slowly. I feel the ground under me vibrate. I've never been so relieved to see something so awful. This story was tracked, mixed, mastered, and scored at the Great Divide Den. Thanks for listening. Look forward to seeing you next week for another case of the Heavey Jeebies. <laughs>